Good afternoon, my name is uh, Pierre Persegle. I'm a senior lecturer in history at the University of Birmingham in the UK. And I've also been involved, uh, and that's probably the most important part of my introduction for a number of years, uh, in a project uh, that is effectively that run by the International Society for First War Studies. What I would like to uh, do before you today is raise a few uh, rather simple but perhaps uh, uh, important uh, questions, problems and challenges uh, pertaining to the role that historians and more generally scholars of the First World War uh, will be playing or might be expected to play in the uh, upcoming f uh, commemorative sequence. And I'm referring of course to the forthcoming centenary of the outbreak of the First World War. What I would like to do in the next uh, 10 or 15 uh, minutes is give you a very brief sense of the state of the field and, and, and to explain how it has come to be one of the most vibrant field of historical uh, study. To discuss again very briefly the contemporary and continuing contemporary relevance of the First World War in our uh, societies and then uh, try to think ahead towards uh, 2014 and uh, the this uh, period in which we will see uh, a fairly uh, impressive, I suspect, public interest in the First World War and where historians and scholars, generally speaking, will need to find ways to engage with, with the public at large. The one question, perhaps, that we all face, uh, teachers, educators, uh, scholars, uh, but also broadcasters and, and, and effectively everyone in the community uh, involved in reflecting upon the First World War is, is the following. What are exactly are we going to be doing between 2014 and 2018? Are we going to commemorate the war, the losses, the upheaval? of the conflict? Are we going to celebrate victories, battles? Or are we, and that's very obviously what academics like myself and educators are concerned with, are we going to concentrate on educating the public uh, in, in our respective roles? Very obviously, of course, uh, posing the question in this way is, is, is the, the easiest part. The difficulty that we face is that commemoration, education and celebration all too often are entangled in such a way that it makes it very difficult for us to uh, unpack these, these three uh, activities, but also to define the role of the historian and of the, the, the scholar of the First War in this, in this context. So let me uh, go on by addressing uh, what is now known as or referred to as the historiographical renewal that our field has enjoyed in the last uh, 25 or 30, 30 years. As I said earlier, our field of study probably is one of the most vibrant field of study. I think historians uh, uh, would, would agree with me, but also literary scholars, political scientists and many other people coming at the First War from a range of disciplinary and intellectual backgrounds. As far as historians are concerned though, uh, it is usually uh, uh, accepted that three turns, as it were, three main movements have contributed to the historiographical renewal. First of all, it turns towards the cultural history 
of, of the war, the history of representation. Uh, and what historians uh, attempted to do and are still working hard to, to understand is the meaning that populations, uh, soldiers uh, at the front or the home front ascribed to uh, the experience of, of the First World War. The second movement has to do with the internationalization of higher education, the internationalization of, of research, and is a turn to uh, comparative and transnational approaches increasingly, and not only because this corresponds to the kind of professional lives we live, but we are questioning the centrality of the nation and of the nation state to uh, bring different perspectives uh, uh, to, to, to bear on the experience of, of, of the First World War. And finally, a turn that one may call a public turn. Uh, the study of memory, of course, has been uh, a, a very exciting uh, area of historical uh, and cultural investigation for some time. But historians do not only pay attention to memory as an object of study, but also increasingly concerned with the way they do engage with memory in the making, as it were, with the way they engage with the way people now remember the events of, of, of the First World War. So we consider our relationship to memory in two different, uh, different ways. To a large extent, um, these this movement is, is, is uh, the result of a more general reflection on the transformations of warfare in the 19th and 20th century. The basic point, and, and that, that I will only make very, very briefly, is that the nature of warfare uh, that, that was uh, illustrated by the First World War, this kind of industrialized mass warfare, pitting mass armies against each other for uh, a number of years, uh, is a direct result of the transformations of societies and belligerent societies themselves, industrialization, the rise of mass politics, technological innovation, and so on and so forth. The point here is that to understand the experience of total war, it is simply not enough to do military history. It is not enough to do economic history to understand the experience of industrial warfare. To make sense of this experience, one has to recognize the limitations of any individual scholar and to bring different perspectives, that means bring different scholars very often together to make sense of, of this conflict, uh, which was obviously waged on the global scale. So an interdisciplinary reflection is very much uh, uh, the foundation of this historiographical renewal, but also a genuine international and transnational conversation, a point which is very obvious to anyone who will spend a few minutes poring over bibliographies like the one that the International Society for First War Studies is uh, currently producing and available on our website. The second um, or rather the third point, um, sorry that I should, should mention, has to do with history and memory. And here, this is perhaps where we hit uh, the, the most difficult part of our uh, uh, activities in the run-up to the uh, centenary for the First World War. Uh, historians, scholars of the First World War, academics are very comfortable operating in, in lecture theater, uh, in, uh, at conferences. We are not often trained or uh, even very well equipped to engage with the public at large. And yet this is exactly what we have to do now, what we need to do in this in this complex and, and in this in this context. And and part of the, the challenge for us is to communicate 
to the public at large the content of or the conclusion, some of the conclusions of this historiographical renewal in that uh, what has been happening uh, to a large extent is, 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 is a collective attempt to rethink the Great, the great War. Now, we could start by a very basic question. When did the war end? When did the war start? When did the war end? That in itself proved to be more problematic than, than people usually assume. The conventional chronology narrated from military and diplomatic history in 1914-1918 well, simply does not actually correspond to the experience of warfare on the European continent, but also in other regions of the world. In such a way that increasingly, historians are drawn to a very different chronology and tend to place the Great War in a period going from 1912 to 1923, effectively starting with the Balkan Wars and ending in 1923 with the end of the Turkish and uh, uh, Greek uh, conflict and the, late, the last um, treaties. That in itself is a, a reflection on our uh, willingness to challenge national perspective, but also to engage with the global nature of this conflict. Now, and I will insist on this, uh, we, we're not arguing here that we should do away with the nation state as a category of analysis. The war was lived and experienced intensely as a national experience. But this clash of nations was also very obviously a clash of empires that took place across, across the globe and we need to account uh, for this. We also need to account for the very local and localized dimensions of the experience. Think about the number of war memorial in every or in most uh, towns and, 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 and villages across belligerent nations. We need to think not only be below but also beyond the nation by addressing the comparative and transnational aspects of this experience. We need, in other words, to think also through the nation to really try to understand how the belligerent societies thought and understood their uh, senses of belonging to uh, a particular nation, nation state. So largely what we're doing increasingly in this field is, 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 is try to find a way to combine uh, different scales of analysis, local, national, global, European, to make sense of different spaces of experience. Now I mentioned uh, First War Memorial that, that, that uh, you can find in most uh, English villages, for instance. But at this very moment, we're very concerned with events in Syria, for instance. Well, to a large extent, of course, as, as, as most of you will know, what we're seeing is the li liquidation of the settlements of the First War. Syria in itself, as an entity, is a direct product of, of the First World War. So it's very, uh, perhaps, uh, obvious to see that this, this, uh, this willingness to, uh, to, to think differently about the First World War uh, will have already has had an impact on the way we write as academics about the First World War, but also helps us understand differently the world we live in. And of course, what we're largely concerned with, uh, and we will be largely concerned with in, in the forthcoming commemorative sequence, are the legacies of, of, of the First World War. What role did the war play in um, bringing the world into the 20th uh, century, but also what role did the, role did the war play in remapping nation-state, Britain being a case in point, of course, uh, 
uh, with, with the Irish uh, crisis settled only at the end of the First World War. But the war redrew uh, the political map of Europe and the political map of the world. Now, what I would like to uh, uh, insist in particular on here is the continuing contemporary um, resonance of the war. Now, there are many ways to demonstrate that the war still matters a great deal to the public at large. We can look at uh, uh, films, uh, comics, uh, even songs that, that, that uh, uh, make references to, to, to the First War. Just take two examples of very, two very uh, fairly successful uh, recent TV shows that uh, um, put the First World War right at the core of their narrative arc. Danton Abbey in this country, but also an American show like Boardwalk Empire, placed uh, a veteran of the First War at the core of their story. And I think this is telling us, uh, this is showing us how relevant the war continues to be uh, to, to societies not only in Europe, but also across, uh, across the world. The First World still has the capacity to make people outraged, angry, to create cultural but also political controversies. And we've seen this uh, over and over again uh, across Europe, controversies over the very politics of the war, controversies about um, the way soldiers uh, were uh, treated by military uh, authorities at the time, mutineers, what to do with soldiers shot and down, uh, for instance, in uh, Britain. In other words, the Great War remains a topic that matters, but remains a very sensitive topic and remains very uh, sensitive in, in a range of national, national context. The question for us, of course, is how can we talk and how can we teach the, the First World War? Well, that question has, has direct relevance to, uh, to the way we operate here in the, uh, in the UK, in that the First World War is seen as a quintessential British tragedy. Uh, the war is still very much seen through national uh, lenses. And, and in fact, to a great extent, many people are still very happy to keep on talking about the First World War without even making any reference to uh, Britain's allies, uh, and indeed in some cases to Britain's enemies. During, uh, during, during the war. We certainly all watched a few days ago the, 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 the Olympic Games opening ceremony, where one of the things that was uh, fairly striking in that ceremony was the, 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 the place uh, given to the red poppy that has come to encapsulate the way the British people and indeed the, 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 the Commonwealth and, and the former British Empire remembers the experience of wars in the 20th century. And of course, the Red Poppy is first and foremost a symbol of the, the First World War. So that is just an, an example of, of that, uh, that, that, continuing, that continuing relevance. The war is seen as the bad war by, uh, by excellence. By contrast, of course, to, uh, to the Second World War, it is seen as the war that uh, so the tragic losses of gallant soldiers led to their death by a bunch of incompetent generals. I mean, this is the usual lions led by donkey uh, interpretation. The problem with this, of course, and many milita military historians will, will, will be able to talk about this at great length, is the dissonance, the gap between what we now remember 
uh, about the First World War, this line, lions led by donkey, and what historians tend to emphasize. In this particular case, not so much the incompetence of generals, although there's a great deal to say about this, but the attempt by all armies involved to learn the way to operate on the conditions of, of the battlefield in 2014-2018. Now this dissonance, this gap between history and memory is particularly important because many of the societies we belong to are still countries at war. And that is uh, very obviously the case in uh, Britain where the dominant uh, narrative about the First War refers to these lost generations of British male, uh, males lost uh, as a result of, of the war. And what we are perhaps seeing here is, is the nation entering into a period where we're going to need to talk about this lost generation to a new generation of soldiers referred to as the Afghan generations. And that, of course, raises all sorts of uh, important questions. How could we make sense of military sacrifice? How can we make sense of losses in war in a context where most of us, most uh, males in, in, in the Western uh, world have absolutely no direct experience of military life when the fighting is done on our behalf by a tiny number of our uh, fellow citizens and, and, and countrymen and, 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 and women. And that leads me on to the challenges we face in this uh, period. What I think we're all keen to do, or at least keen to try to do, is to change the terms of the public debate. Not only to educate uh, the public, to uh, allow them to get acquainted with the work of historians in, in the last 20, 20, 25 years. But also because reflecting upon the First World raises critical questions about the kind of society we are. Questions about our past, but also questions about our present. I mentioned our capacity to engage with the fact that we are still countries at war. War, by definition, raises fundamental questions about violence, ethical and political questions, but also about solidarity, about the kind of societies that, 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 we, that we are. The first uh, question for historians of the First World will be to address the fact that the First World War is, of course, a tragedy, but a tragedy because belligerent societies accepted to fight this war, consented to the war for so long. And this is something that we are still struggling to address because we tend to see ourselves as victims as opposed to agents in that, in that conflict. The legacies of the Great War, I've mentioned them already, are still around, uh, uh, around us and we need to uh, find ways to make sense of the world we live in and teaching, thinking, writing about the First War is one of the ways in which we can, we can do this. Now we're also entering, uh, well entering, we've entered uh, quite some time ago, a period in which we've got the possibility to uh, use different media, different tools to engage with with the public at large. I mean, after all, podcasting is, 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 is one of them. Now, just a few uh, challenges, but also opportunities, perhaps, to, to conclude, to conclude this, this talk. One challenge is, is, for instance, that we all, the majority of us, live in urban areas. 
Whereas the people that we are interested in as First World War historians and scholars tended to come from rural societies. Now, how can you use the world we live in, the city, towns, to talk about the First World War? Well, there are ways, for instance, for us to use the urban landscape to, or the topology of towns and cities to talk about the First World War by mobilizing the memory of the legacy in the urban uh, context. One of the things that, that the Great War Archive at Oxford has been fantastic at doing, for instance, was to use personal stories to create a connection for the war, but in other words, to embody history and to bring people to the war as a historical problem, but to bring them to that problem through a personal story. Now, new tools, new uh, possibilities, but also a changing political context, in particular for people interested in the European uh, 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 dimension of the war. You might have heard of this crisis going on in Europe at the moment that I understand has to do with currencies and institutions and, 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 and so on. But there are also some other problems that we should be aware of as, as First World War historians. I'm not sure that many people in this room have paid much attention to Hungarian politics in the last two or three years. But one of the problems raised by uh, right-wing populist movements in Eastern and Central Europe, and in Hungary in particular, was the fact that what they're effectively trying to do, and if you look at what the, the Hungarian Prime Minister, Viktor Orban, is trying to do, is effectively to challenge the legacy of the First War, to challenge the Treaty of Trianon in this particular context, to go back to a pre-1920 state of political affairs. And what the debate in Hungary has been about it's been about citizenship as redefined by the First War, has been about the very boundaries and frontiers defined and imposed by the post-First World War order. In other words, it's all well and good for historians to get fairly excited about the centenary of the First World War, and God knows that we're all going to be very, very busy about this. But this is not only about making sure that people you know, buy our books or listen to a podcast or uh, come to our universities. This is also about finding ways to engage with some very contemporary and indeed pressing challenges in Britain, in Europe, and in the world. Thank you.